Hi, I'm Maddie. I'm a communications officer at the RHN. And today we are joined by Alex and Luke. Hi, guys. Hi. So thank you for joining us. If you just want to start off by introducing yourselves and your role at the RHN. Okay, so I'm Luke, so I'm a senior physiotherapist on the brain injury service at the RHN, which is a level one rehabilitation service. Um, and I guess my primary role is I help coordinate a team of physiotherapists um, that look to improve people's function and level of independence after a severe brain injury. Um, and I also have a, a role in um, complex tracheostomy weaning and management of complex posture and spasticity. And I'm Alex, I work with Luke on Draper's Ward, our rehabilitation unit, and I'm the principal clinical psychologist, so I supervise the other psychologists working on the rehab ward as well as the uh, ward where we assess patients that are in disorders of consciousness. Uh, I'm also a PhD fellow at the RHN, and that means the RHN has kindly funded me to complete my PhD. I'm currently writing up my results, planning to submit in September on how we should be assessing mood in patients after they've had a severe brain injury. And the role of psychology at the RHN is looking at things like mood uh, and any sort of disorders around anxiety, difficulties with adjustment, and then assessing cognition and patients' abilities to make decisions for themselves after they've had a brain injury. So you mentioned that you work within the brain injury service. Uh, can you describe a bit more what that is, what kind of patients it takes on? So, yeah, so the Brain Injury Service is um, it's classed as a level one rehabilitation service, which is a, a rehabilitation service that takes the highest levels of complexity in terms of a patient's neuro-rehabilitation needs. Um, and we have, I think we worked out 48 beds mm -hmm. on our rehab service, um, and they're split between two units or wards. Uh, so we have Devonshire Ward and uh, Draper's Ward. And so Devonshire Ward historically was our patients with the more, the more severe brain injuries and patients in prolonged disorders of consciousness or with real, real significant um, cognitive communication, physical disability, mm -hmm. who were predominantly here for disability management and improving quality of life um, and assessment of their awareness. Mm -hmm. And then Draper's Ward is more of your, what people would term your traditional rehabilitation, so working with people towards um, improving their function, their level of independence, and hopefully back into participating in society at some level. Mm. And patients on Draper's will here uh, adopt what's called the goal-oriented rehab program, so uh, as long as they are progressing towards their goals, they stay with us for up to six months maximum, um, where they might then go on to other services that would be more appropriate at that stage, but we really try and focus on their goals and their progression so obviously you kind of you work quite closely together but also in quite different disciplines as well um, and at the RHN it's very much a multidisciplinary team um, so can you kind of describe how that works and what it's like to work in a multidisciplinary team and um, has made a difference in your roles here yeah I think Luke and I have been working together for Six years. Six, 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 seven, yeah. six, six. Um, and I think one of the things that as psychologists I really value is that when patients have really severe cognitive or communication difficulties, traditional therapy is really challenging. And so sessions are quite limited in terms of being able to really uh, reason things through or talk things through that you hope they'll be able to remember in the next physio session. 
that's much more beneficial for me to go and sit in the therapy hub with Luke and do a session together where I'm assessing things whilst he's working on sort of physical goals. Um, and then obviously we sit in a wider team as well. So we've got speech and language therapists, occupational therapists, music therapists, dietitians, social workers, and then we're overseen by consultant doctors and their ward doctors. And then we have the nursing team as well. So we all sit together in a, in a sort of wider team and have weekly discussions about our patients and their progression. Um, but it's definitely something that in all the other services that I've worked in at Psychology is often a very standalone service. But I think at the RHN, uh, we like to be more involved in sort of more physical sessions and participating in things. Um, we're also working as a team or doing joint sessions. And I think you might have it as a multidisciplinary team. And I'd say at RHN, we prefer to use the term interdisciplinary team. And the, the subtle difference really being as a multidisciplinary team, I would deem as a, a set of professionals working separately with the same person. Whereas an interdisciplinary team, we all try to work together mm-hmm. in joint sessions towards the, the same aims of an individual patient. Mm-hmm. So all using all of our skills and expertise in conjunction with each other to try and optimise that outcome for patients and others. And I think we, the RHN is very good at coordinating that. We are a very close, well-knit interdisciplinary team um, and we will communicate very well together mm-hmm. and hopefully that benefits our patients in the long run. Yeah, so... Like I mentioned, you guys work quite closely together and you've also worked together on service development projects um, where you did on values-based goal setting. Can you explain a bit more about what that kind of entailed and what the kind of outcomes were? Yeah, so I think really at the heart of what our change as an organisation is putting the patient at the centre of it and looking at things holistically, so what really matters to that patient. So we crawl back in 2018, maybe a little bit before, and look to sort of redevelop the way that we use and set goals within the rehabilitation unit to really try and make them truly patient-focused. And we created this method of goal setting called value-based goal setting, um, where we really try and delve into specifics about what is important to that, per- that patient or person as an individual, so what, what values they have within their life, what roles were important to them, and then use this information to try and structure goals in conjunction with the, the patients and their families that are truly meaningful mm-hmm. for them. And hopefully in doing that, it's more motivational to the patient um, and improves engagement in their rehabilitation. And really, it means that the whole team gets to know that person as an individual. And then again, it improves, hopefully improves outcome and throughput. And, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think giving background to that as well is that in, in neurorehabilitation there are sort of general processes of how to set goals, but a lot of it kind of assumes that you've got the cognitive ability to participate in it, uh, and they tend to be these very sort of, I suppose, unidisciplinary goals in terms of things that need to get done during the admission or, you know, improvements that are, you know, great to achieve, like being able to walk across the gym in under three minutes. But in terms of actual meaning, they're, 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 quite, they're quite empty, really. Um, and we sort of felt, having worked in the service for a while and consulting our colleagues, that the way that we were setting goals with those processes wasn't really capturing our patient population. It wasn't really motivating them to participate. It was quite, um, it was quite a complex system for them, really. So values-based is then uh, going back to the crux of who they are as a person. And it's based on the sort of understanding that even if something really traumatic happens to you and you have cognitive difficulties that mean that you don't necessarily know 
where you are or what's going on, your memory difficulties, that who you were as a person remains. So somebody who values being a really good friend will continue to value their friendships after they've had something happen to them. So we try to tap into that uh, and motivate them in that way. So you do end up with some creative goals, I think, that, that you wouldn't see elsewhere. I think my favourite one that I had was the gentleman who his goal was to uh, drink a glass, a cold glass of Chardonnay and eat my son's freshly made sourdough. And that was his goal. And obviously around that, there were loads of goals around uh, he uh, had just been decannulated from his tracheostomy, so there were goals around what his, um, there were speech difficulties, so we would sort of set the goals around would he be able to order that and be understood by a waitress. Exactly. So you sort of, as an IDT, then set goals around that uh, values-based goal that the patient has. And, and I think it doesn't just motivate the patient, I think we feel more motivated yeah. um, in terms of trying to get this person back to who they were. And yeah, perhaps favours the retention of the whole IDT, so that we're all working towards the same goal that is something that is valuable and important to that patient. And as part of the, as part of the audit, Luke and I restructured a lot of the paperwork we do and how we discuss things in our meetings. So previously we would uh, have our weekly meeting and physio would give, give feedback, speech and language therapy give feedback, OT give feedback, psychology give feedback. Now we do a medical feedback, a general overview of how they are that week, and then we speak about the goals. And everybody is expected to speak about that goal together in terms of how they're progressing. How yeah. each profession is contributing towards that patient's goal. Yeah. So it's very much like a personal, the patient is at the centre of all of... Yeah, Yeah. Um, and I think we we did an audit of it um, and generally was really well received by staff who'd received training from us and have started practising using it, but also really well received by service users and their families, um, which was really positive. We did also develop a a similar, almost exactly the same process on the PDOC board as well, um, but have adjusted that because obviously goal setting there is some element of a person being able to participate in that process. So when it comes to disorder consciousness where someone's not aware and they're not able to engage in any of that, we call them patient-centered objectives. So instead of just talking about a checklist of everything we want to achieve during the mission, we still look at their values and we still think about how those things that we need to achieve align with this person's values. Right. So, and speaking of that, you did present your results at a conference so at the end I, of last yeah, year? Yeah, so we've, had a, we've presented, we've had a couple of um, posters presented at research events, and I did an oral presentation on the values-based goal setting at the International Marketing Conference, which is the Association for Chartered Physiotherapists in Urology, and so that was in London last year, so yeah, I did an oral presentation there, which was very well received. Um, and then we also had an article published in the Neuropsychology Journal, um, Psychologist. Psychologist. Yeah. So that was published in October 2022, and then I presented um, the results at the World Federation of Neurorehabilitation Conference in Glasgow in, um, and it wasn't Glasgow, it was in Maastricht, Maastricht mm. in um, the Netherlands last year. We've had quite a bit of interest over the years, I think, from other units similar to us or sort of. Uh, 2B, we have units of our high setting goals, and quite often we get emails and things asking for any advice or like how we've been doing it here. So I think, I think there's a big emphasis within the wider Euro community of, of looking at trying to use more of a value space approach with our patients anyway, mm-hmm. and get, looking at how we can engage patients better in the rehabilitation and this is what we're doing. So you just mentioned prolonged disorders of consciousness or PDOC for mm-hmm. short. 
Um, just for the people who aren't kind of familiar with neurodisability and brain injury, can you just explain a bit about what that means um, for a person? Sure. So disorders of consciousness happen after a sort of really profound brain injury and it leaves someone in a situation where they aren't in a coma anymore. They have cycles of being asleep and being awake, but they're not able to really demonstrate any other awareness outside of that. So all of their care is delivered in their best interests and, and we're looking at trying to work out through assessment what they are and are not aware of. So you get different stages of disorders of consciousness and that can range from being in a vegetative state where there's no awareness, a minimally conscious state where there's some awareness, and then some patients do go on to emerge where they still have fairly profound cognitive and communication difficulty because of the extent of the brain injury. And so the role of the team at the RHN is to really assess where the person is on the sort of continuum of consciousness in order to make sure that they're getting the right care um, being provided to them. Okay, thank you. Um, I know for me as someone who is not a clinical member of staff, when I first joined, I was quite unfamiliar with what that meant. So I think that's really helpful. Um, just in terms of the goal setting and, and how that sort of influences rehab, we also do a lot of work on sort of values and the preferences of the person about their discharge and where they want to be. And that can be helping them to get all the way back home as they would want to, but also having really complex and difficult conversations if somebody does want to go home and perhaps they can't because they lived in a third-storey flat and they're going to be wheelchair-bound. We need to sort of be able to consider that person's values and still find a way that the discharge planning we're doing is in line with those. Mm -hmm. um, so a good example might be is if somebody's really social, finding them somewhere close to family, where they're able to come and go from, from a service. So based on this values-based goal-setting project that you've done, um, have there been any success stories that you would like to share? One that springs to mind is a few years back we had a, a lady admitted to the unit who had done a lot of work for charity in the past and was very keen to try and give something back to the organisation. Um, and one of her goals was around basically trying to help organise and participate in a, a fundraising event um, for RHS organisation. So we did a sponsored walk, the corridor walk it was called, which is about 200 metres long, I think, the main corridor of RHN. And we had, in the end, four or five uh, patients from Draper's Ward who participated, uh, and they all um, had just given pages and, and, and raised money to complete this walk. And these patients had all been admitted to the hospital with severe brain injuries. Most of them needed two carers and a full hoist to move between their bed and chair when they arrived to us. And then towards the end of their time with this, completed this charity walk and all managed the 200 metres um, with different levels of assistance and specialist aids and things like that, um, but raised a huge amount of money for the hospital. Um, and then this lady then went on to go back home to live with her family and then since then has been in contact with the organisation again looking to try and set up similar events going forward. So that's a really nice one. And I think we have lots of patients who Lots of their goals are around being able to go to like, their favourite restaurant with their families and things, and these are things that I'd say we're achieving mm. on a very regular basis. Well, um, I'm going to say it's almost like I'm trying to think of like these big stories that are successes, but I think a lot of the things we do are very person centred and, and don't necessarily happen in every single unit. So, you know, things like we try and make where possible very early on in a mission if patients are able to access a local community, go to a pub with a family member for Sunday roast, things like that, that that's happening quite early on. 
Um, and yeah, we just. It's about looking at, as well as trying to improve their level of independent ability to do that, it's about looking at ways that you can compensate or, or help them achieve these things. So looking at the wheelchair, what support they're needing, teaching the family how to help them move around, little things like that, like working with them so they can try and maybe taste some pleasure if their swallow is too weak to have a full meal, just so that they can attend and participate in these things with their families. I think that's that's the sort of thing that we're achieving on a weekly basis mm -hmm. with a lot of our patients here, which helps yeah keep them engaged, keep them motivated, and then mm -hmm. ultimately helps them progress through their rehabilitation and achieve their outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's like, motivation is really important because you know, the evidence base of recovery after a brain injury is just repetitive exposure to the same thing again and again and yeah. again. That gets boring really quickly if if your your goal is. Like I said earlier, to be able to walk across the gym in three minutes. Whereas if you've got a bigger goal involving more important things, you're just more motivated to do it every day and keep doing yeah. the same things. Really, the service is commissioned. Our main aim is to reduce a person's care needs. Yes. That's really what we're paid to do. So it's the last thing is like reducing the amount of equipment they need or reducing the number of carers they need or the frequency that they need care calls. But by working towards something, say, for instance, if a patient's goal might be that he wants to go to the pub on a Friday night with his mates to watch the dance, and he's always done that. Um, the goal that that's a really nice goal for him to set, but in achieving that, if we can work a, a way that this man can get himself to the pub, can get himself while he's in the pub, use the toilet, can order himself a drink, can drink some of the drinks, and can participate socially, then in doing that, you're reducing his care needs, you're improving his level of ability, so it doesn't support to get between A and B, doesn't need support to get on off the toilet, needs less support to like communicate. So you're still reducing his care needs, but then you're structuring that way that's more valuable and important to the patient. That's really nice and I'm sure that makes kind of your both of your roles feel really worthwhile and fulfilling for you as well. Alex, we spoke at the end of last year uh, about how you had a very Full on busy <laughs> from the sounds of it. Um, and you had your wedding, then went straight after that to a conference. Yeah, I got I got married on the Saturday and then I went to a conference on the Tuesday and presented at the conference and then went on my honeymoon and then was back for a week and then went to Glasgow to present in a separate conference. Wow. What what was that like? Was that <laughs> stressful? Yeah. <laughs> I think it, I clearly have learned that I need to be very busy uh, in order to be very sort of productive and effective in, in what I get done. So I, I respond better to a to-do list of 20 things than two things. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was, it was quite exhilarating um, and really, really busy. I think I really appreciated some down the line on Christmas. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was just my wedding coincided with the most um, sort of the busiest years with the PhD in terms of data collection and therefore presenting the data. So I've got yeah. a little bit more ritual that year than now. Okay. Yeah, but I anticipate the end of this year will probably be as busy as Just as exciting. Yeah. Was that a wedding to plan? That's, that's always useful as well. Useful. That takes a bit of the... It takes a gives you back a bit of time, yeah. I would imagine. Luke was there on my wedding day. He helped out with that. With the wedding Yeah, not, not, not with not the PhD. No. You want to read... An article about that I wrote one that's on the website. <laughs> yeah, great wedding pictures <laughs> with some lovely, <laughs> lovely wedding pictures. Great wedding pictures, <laughs> <laughs> some really good selfies. Oh. Yeah, uh, they're 
absolutely. Also pictures at the conferences as well, because they are just as important as the wedding. Also, we do at the RHM, we do a lot of um, educational events, different courses mm -hmm. and training. Are there any you would like to promote and plug right now? Um, so as I said, we run a number of different courses and training events here. So from a, a from the physiotherapy and occupational therapy <coughs> teams, we run a, a bi-yearly, I think, um, course on managing complex tone and spasticity, so spasticity and casting. And so that's a, I believe it's a two-day course, which is very practical. Um, as a, a bit like Morgan's tentative theory taught by experts within the field of casting and spasticity. Um, and there's a practical sessions in the afternoon. These are usually very popular and attended by people from all over the country, and probably one of the few organisations that has this level of expertise and runs these courses, especially around the casting side of things. Uh, we also run, obviously, yearly PDOC uh, courses, mm -hmm. which the whole IDT is involved in teaching, um, from consultants all the way through to some of our rehab support workers getting involved. Mm -hmm. um, because, as you mentioned, the PDOC population specifically are very um, like not that well understood to the wider population and we've got a specialist centre in Hockney for a long time um, for people with this sort of presentation. Yeah, and if um, any listener needs support with that, we also have the Dunning PDOC toolkit which is freely available from the RHA website and that just helps in sort of giving uh, guidance on how to manage this complex uh, condition. Um, other things to note, we uh, run biannually um, the managing behaviours that challenge training. Um, so that's having a look at how to manage distress and agitation and challenging behaviour after brain injury. Um, that also involves you know, a lot of theory but also some practical components. Um, at the moment I'm doing annual talks in terms of the assessment of moon and the findings of my PhD. I do those, I've done a lot as a sort of free um, online hour-long lecture. Uh, we're also in the process of developing internal um, sort of complex rehabilitation training, which we plan to launch this year internally and then progress out to external training next year. So that's the idea of us dealing specifically with more severe brain injuries. Uh, we have a sort of body of knowledge and expertise that we wish to sort of expose others to and have them train. Because, uh, you know, like we mentioned, Disorders of consciousness aren't fully understood and they, they're, they're still considered to be relatively rare compared to other uh, etiologies and, and brain injury conditions. But even just working with patients who have very severe brain injury, a lot of the time you don't get training on that in, in your general courses. Um, so I know that as, as neuropsychologist, I got maybe one day of mentioning from Barbara Wilson and then not much else. Uh, so I think it's about knowing what to do like I said earlier, if you're a psychologist and you're faced with a situation where a patient can't talk or they're too cognitively impaired to take any strategies, what should you be doing instead? So we're hoping to launch that in 2024. At the end of our last episode, we spoke, well, the whole episode was us speaking to Catherine from Archives. Wanted to know, what do you think is the best archive piece that we have at the RHM from our history? I'm more fascinated by the royal family, so we have a lot of stuff around visits from then Prince Charles, now, now our king, um, but also things from the Queen as well, so there's lots of royal photos and um, 
I was always fascinated that they used to be next to the cycle department. They used to have wicker chairs, which were sort of really old wheelchairs, which were really amazing to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but it's, it's not... I, I, I quite enjoyed their stuff around COVID. The archivist interviewed a lot of us around our experiences of COVID, almost like a time capsule mm. to be able to reflect back on, on things that we'd experienced and what it felt like to be working through a pandemic and how it was. So I thought that was quite an important thing to stand. Yeah. So then what would your question be for our next guest? What about RHN do you value the most? Thank you guys so much for coming on and speaking with us. Really insightful. I'm sure will be very insightful to all of our listeners. So thank you again.